Let's make real estate for everyone. Welcome to the Addy Podcast. At Addy, we're on a mission to make every human a homeowner. On our podcast, we share real estate investing best practices, industry news, and advice from real life experts. Keep up to date with what we're doing at addyinvest.com. I'm Katie Kernahan, and today on episode number eight of the Addy Podcast, we talk with entrepreneur and CEO of Cubic Farms, Dave Dinson, about the future of farming and investing in land. Cubic Farms is one of the world's leading ag tech companies that develops technology to feed a changing world. Cubic Farms has developed and patented some of the most advanced growing machines for fresh vegetables and nutritious animal feed that enable commercial-scale indoor farming anywhere on earth. Dave leads growth at Cubic Farms, and since inception, he has raised over $23 million in capital. He's the former CEO and founder of BackCheck, which became one of the world's top 10 background screening companies, where he advanced the company from a startup to an industry-leading company operating on three continents with over 500 employees. Welcome, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us on this lunch hour. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Katie. Perfect. Um, So I guess just to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. So I started my first company in 1997. It was a company called BackCheck. We did pre-employment background uh, screening technology, Um, became one of the largest background screening companies in the world. So focused on the HR technology with a focus on background screening. Sold that in 2012 to a large U.S. competitor, uh, merged the businesses, joined the team in New York, and then sold it again uh, in early 2015. Um, retired for a year, and then started uh, got involved in Cubic Farms. Uh, I was friends with one of the founders, and uh, I've been watching this incredibly cool technology they were building to help change the future of farming, and uh, I jumped at the opportunity when invited to get involved. Awesome. How long ago was that that you joined? Yeah, I joined Cubic Farms about four and a half years ago. Okay, cool. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Cubic Farms? Sure. So we're an ag tech company. Um, our, 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 our mission is uh, creating technology to feed a changing world. We've got two sides to the business. One is tech, automated controlled environment ag technology that can grow enormous amounts of, of fresh vegetables and many other plants inside uh, buildings. And then we also have a a technology for growing uh, enormous amounts of live green animal feed. Many parts of the world, you can't send your animal out to pasture because land's covered in snow or frost or whatever the case may be, but this lets you feed your animal with optimal uh, live green nutritious feed uh, 12 months a year. So fresh and feed, we like to say, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> cool. And so how big, just for the people who are unfamiliar on the line, like how big are these machines? Are these commercial machines or, you know, can someone put them on the patio? <laughs> have to be a very big patio. Um, <laughs> the, um, our, our, our fresh vegetable growing machines and the animal feed machines, they're about uh, uh, 40 feet long, eight feet wide and nine and a half feet high. So if you picture a large shipping container, that's about the size of, of either of the machines. And we typically don't sell one at a time. Uh, there's some instances where we do, but usually we'll sell you know, several at a time to a farmer so that they've got enough um, capacity to you know, grow enough to have a commercial scale operation. Yeah. And so how much yield did you get from one machine? Sure. So on, on the fresh vegetable uh, side, so the cubic farm side of the, of the business, one machine uh, can grow a variety of different crops. So it can do lettuces, herbs, microgreens, Asian vegetables, 
and you can also propagate. So uh, I would say the, the, the lowest density would be uh, lettuce. You can grow 110,000 heads of lettuce per year per machine. So it's an enormous amount of, of produce. A basil, you can grow about um, uh, 10 times that amount. Uh, so enormous uh, amounts. Uh, seedlings, you can germinate plants from seed to seedling, about 120,000 seedlings at any one time, and they take about uh, two weeks. Um, so you could do, you know, just under 3 million seedlings a year with one machine. So um, it, it'll grow an enormous amount of, of crop um, in a small amount of, you know, relatively speaking, small amount of space. You would need many, many acres of land to try and get that equivalent. Right. And so you mentioned that farmers are obviously your target customers are the ones buying these. Um, how, like, are, um, how expensive are these machines? Yeah, so each machine is, is, is going to be about 125,000 US um, per machine, either on the feed side or the fresh side. Um, our propagation machine, is, it costs a little bit more than that, about 150,000. But 125 is a nice kind of round number at, at the moment. Cool. And um, what's the feedback been like from industry? Like, are farmers excited about this technology? Are they hesitant? It's disrupting their traditional way of doing things? Well, uh, it, interestingly, on, on both sides, uh, it's really just, just complementary. Um, it's, um, it's not really competing with what they're doing now, other than, say, you know, a, a lettuce farmer in California where, or Arizona, where right now, you know, that's where a lot of our leafy green type produce comes from, has to be shipped for thousands and thousands of miles. Now farmers can grow those types of crops uh, locally and at commercial scale. So it is competing with, it, with them. Um, but for the majority of our customers, it, it allows them to uh, augment what they're doing now. So, for example, we have one customer that's a large garlic farmer, a field farmer, uh, but he's only able to be productive a few months a year, whereas now he's able to grow 12 months a year because he's already got staff and sales and infrastructure and land. Now he's able to actually you know, grow other crops 12 months a year that he can service his customers with and, and things like that. And then same on the animal feed side. Uh, farmers are already buying grain and hay and things to feed their animals and they already have pasture land. Well, now they can have more animals on that same amount of pasture land and they're able to you know, then purchase less grain and hay, but yet give the animal much healthier nutrition um, by giving them live green uh, nutritious feed. Got it. So if the, the machines augment what they're currently doing, are they buying additional space to put these machines on? or are they using their existing land? Yeah, so it, 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 they're able to usually use their existing land. So what it does is, is, it, is it allows the land that they do have to be much more valuable to them. So they're able to have, you know, for example, they could have more cattle on the same amount of land. Well, that makes the value of that land to that farmer much, much better. And then same on the fresh vegetable side. Um, we, we've got one project we're working on where we're going to be utilizing just the crappiest, oldest, ugliest building you've ever seen in your life um, that would be very, very hard to renovate, take years to get the permitting through. Well, now they can actually have a very productive local farm um, very quickly to uh, repurpose um, uh, that, that facility. 
And then also on the farmland side, you could take the worst part of your farmland where maybe it's not efficient to put a greenhouse or it's inefficient to, to field that to grow. You can install this kind of technology on the worst part of your land and make that you know, otherwise unusable land now very valuable. So th th there is a significant real estate play aspect to this kind of farming technology because it just lets you be much more productive on that land or to repurpose it from being you know relatively unusable to now being usable no interesting so you're not necessarily seeing cases where obviously this is a smaller footprint for growing um you know large amounts of produce you're not seeing farmers you know looking for less land necessarily yeah i would say that that the farmer will just augment or supplement what they're doing and be able to have a wider variety of crops growing reliably 12 months a year right next to, um, you know, perhaps a, a, a traditionally grown crop. This really lets you optimize the land, optimize your staff, the infrastructure, sales, all those things that you already have in place, you can now just, just utilize them more. Cool. Um, and so, you know, hot topic, obviously, is COVID-19 right now. And so I'd be curious to understand how this pandemic has, you know, impacted your business. And then also it's had a big impact um, on agriculture and farming. Yeah, we, we've noticed um, a, a real uh, uptick in the number of inquiries that we've received, both on the, um, the fresh side of the business or on the animal feed side. Um, because countries have become acutely aware of the fragility of the uh, global logistics and supply chains. And having autonomy with respect to your food supply is absolutely crucial. So just like September 11th caused the world to look through security and flying and you know, all these things that we do through a lens of security, um, it seems that the pandemic will have, uh, will influence and, and will look at our decisions around where are we getting our food from, um, how far does it have to travel, et cetera, through the lens of supply chains are fragile. They can break. Bad things can happen. And the fact is that because we can produce food at, at, at a very similar price once you add everything all in to, you know, something that's been grown far away and, and then shipped. Uh, a, a package of a cubic farm grown, you know, salad for your dinner is the same price as one that's, that's come from a field far away. Well, all of a sudden it makes a financial sense as well as all the environmental benefits plus the food security benefits of, of growing locally. So all of these things have combined to really underscore uh, the value of our technology will let you grow, you know, commercial scale uh, produce or feed locally. Right. And what about impacts, um, you know, to operate safely in line with public health and safety guidelines? Yeah. So, again, we have very clean facilities that utilize uh, far less labor um, than, for example, a, a greenhouse facility or, you know, well, talking about the hydrogreen animal feed uh, technology that we have, it uses almost no labor. Um, it's a fully automated planting, growing, watering, lighting, harvesting, cleaning, reseeding, growing again. That's all completely automated with the press of a button. Very little labor. And on the farms, uh, on the on the fresh side, um, if you've seen any of our videos, we have them on cubicfarms.com. Uh, 
our, our machines bring all the trays of produce to the front where, where an employee can stand and do all the harvesting and the planting. And you can spread your workforce out so that uh, you can uh, you know, observe uh, the guidelines um, that most health uh, authorities have issued uh, quite easily. And they're clean environments with great airflow. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty safe way to farm. Right. How many, you know, how many people would it typically take to operate and manage one of these machines? Um, so on the, on the fresh vegetable side, um, it's about um, one quarter of a full-time employee per machine. So relatively little. And on the animal feed side, it's, um, if, if you had say a dozen machines, you, you, you'd need one one full-time employee. So it's, it's very, very labor friendly. Cool. And what about, um, pesticides? I mean, obviously these things are enclosed. Is there the same use of pesticides as there are in typical farms? No, the, you don't need any pesticides, uh, whatsoever. Um, you're in a clean environment. Uh, you don't, there's no pests. You don't need pesticides. Yeah. In addition to that, we uses very, very little fresh water. Um, maybe just two or three percent of the water that's used in field farming is, is required in, in, in cubic farming. Cool. So it sounds like there's tons of benefits. There's a smaller footprint. Um, it's efficient with water and nutrient use. You're eliminating chemicals, um, you know, reducing energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions, all that stuff. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, th th this is how, um, uh, you know, Technologies sometimes take a little bit to catch on, but once they do, you know, just you know, it wasn't more than a decade ago that the thought of, you know, electric cars being ev everywhere um, would, would be thought to be crazy. 50 years ago, if you'd have said to people or to farmers, we're going to grow peppers, cucumbers and tomatoes in buildings 12 months a year without soil, and we can do it almost anywhere on the planet. They think you're crazy. Well, Greenhouses now grow most of our peppers, cucumbers, and tomatoes. They're delicious, they're healthy, they're fantastic, and they grow 12 months a year all around the world. This kind of technology uh, addresses another slice of, feel, of, of, of growing different kinds of produce or how we feed animals. They don't just have to eat grain and hay. They can have live green, just like the benefits of putting a cow out to pasture which you can only do if there's no snow on the ground or frost or if there's enough irrigation available. Now you can give them fantastic feed, which you know, they'll live longer, have more babies, the milk's worth more, the meat's worth more, it's a healthier animal. Um, so there's just so, much, so many benefits to leveraging these technologies and growing locally uh, to the environment, to the farm, to the farmer, and certainly to the consumer. Yeah, it's very cool. So sounds like overall response from industry has been really positive. Have you had, um, I mean, you know, I think farmers, farming is sort of a legacy business passed down from generation to generation. Have you seen any resistance from like the older generations who are maybe resistant to technology versus the younger ones that are, you know, really excited to innovate on their, on their land? Well, we, we've had both um, uh, become customers. So traditional farmers, uh, either greenhouse or field farmers have become customers. Uh, but as well, we've had new entrants. So uh, people that, that believe that this kind of local farming is the future. So we've had both sort of early adopters and then traditional farmers that see that this is a way for them to do more with their existing land. 
um, and utilize, you know, as I said off the top, sort of, you know, less productive parts of their land. Now it can be much more productive or repurpose an older building and be able to have a, um, uh, you know, a viable business inside that building. Um, so we, we've, we've actually seen both. Right. Interesting. And um, doesn't sound like you've had to really pivot your business much during COVID-19, but um, like, have there been things that you've had to rethink as a result of the pandemic? Um, um, probably the, one of the biggest impacts is, is farmers, you know, getting access to credit, um, you know, that, that has delayed some, uh, some deals. Um, but it, it seems that that was just, just kind of for a few weeks in sort of, you know, late March or early April. Um, that, that, that all seems to have, have normalized now. And now the, the, all of the benefits of food security, local growing, because of the supply chain challenges, um, food challenges, all, all of these sorts of things have become so acute that, that, it, that the availability for funding, government programs, um, all, all of these sorts of things has, has increased significantly. So we're, 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 you know, the pendulum has swung from, you know, do things slow down a bit to, oh my goodness, this is really escalating. Right. Do you have a point of view on how the government has responded to support um, the agricultural business? I mean, they've declared it an essential service, obviously, but um, do you have thoughts around what, what, how that's been received? Yeah. Um, governments have actually been very supportive and um, uh, more programs have been made available. Um, additional funding has been made available. And uh, it's sort of moved, especially on the ag tech side, it, it's moved it up to the top of the list for things that countries, um, you know, Canada and, and other countries know that they have to get right. And we can't just assume that forever we can import everything that we need. Um, that's just no longer uh, a given. Right. Um, and so does the crisis change the type of markets that you're looking at? Um, like, are you guys primarily focused in North America? No, uh, global. We, we have uh, sales cycles going um, on all continents, um, and uh, they, they have they have begun to um, only accelerate with the uh, with the advent of of the pandemic. Yeah. Have any markets that surprised you in terms of where you're getting a spike in demand? Um, no, we, we've actually expected it to be um, fairly global. Um, I would say the surprise has just been the speed and increase of the number of inquiries and, and the heightened interest for this kind of technology. Uh, sorry, that just, my computer just cut out for a second there. Um, uh, Sorry, it's just frozen for a second. Um, so you recently hosted a webinar on the future of sustainable dairy. Uh, I'd love to know just what a couple of the key takeaways are from that session. Sure. So um, the, the, there's there's several components to what, what we call the you know the, the, the future of, of, of livestock farming. Um, there's of course the feed and making available to the animal the optimal feed and the benefits of giving an animal what they want. If you give them the right feed, they're gonna reward you by having more babies, living longer, um, uh, lower veterinarian costs, they're gonna, and then the meat or the milk or the, or the product from that animal is gonna be worth more. 
Um, but there's also benefits to the farm. Um, when you animal properly, um, they can uh, produce less waste. And then the waste that they do produce, so the manure, um, which, which gets such, you know, there's a lot of uh, attention being paid to these kinds of farms. Um, when you feed the animal properly, they're able to absorb all of those nutrients and enzymes much more readily so that, 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 that the waste that they create is much less uh, nutrient dense. And so uh, that, the, the, there's sort of a, several benefits to that. But then there's how do you, what, what do you do with that waste? Can you capture those nutrients and that wastewater and that waste and what do you do with it? Well, you can. And so a, a future farm would be able to feed the animal with the optimal live green nutritious feed 12 months a year. And then they would be able to capture that waste water, waste nutrient, and use the waste to use, for example, in a, um, in a, in a, in a digester to be able to generate power that then runs that farm. So you can capture the water and reuse it, capture the waste and reuse it, and then feed that animal uh, properly. So that lets you then have even more animals in, in a similar amount of space and just have a much more uh, environmentally friendly farm with happier animals that are more valuable. Uh, it, it really is the future of farming. So that, that was sort of the, the, the topics of that webinar. Cool. And are there any other opportunities that you see for farming kind of coming out of this, given that there's been a big spotlight on food and supply chains and labor shortages? Yeah, I, I, I think that um, uh, more uh, people will be able to get into growing locally. And I think the consumer is going to, the, the market was already trending towards growing locally. People want to preserve fresh water. They don't want pesticides with their salad. Um, they want things done locally so that there isn't an enormous amount of greenhouse gases um, that, that, that come along with every meal. That, so that was already a trend that was happening. And then the pandemic has simply underscored that, oh, we actually do need to make sure that we have a, a sustainable local 12-month food supply available. And so all of these things, I think, lend themselves so there'll be more opportunities for local farming in every country, and Canada's no exception. So uh, that, that's certainly what I'm seeing. Right. And do you think that, um, you know, moving to local, we'll see, a, like, what do you think that this will have um, on the supply and demand um, for local farmers versus importing products? Um, most, uh, we're certainly seeing this with retailers and, and other food service. If they can get local, they want local. And especially if the price is the same or, or, or largely similar, they want local. Um, but there's another aspect, and uh, I'm sure you know, most, of, most of the listeners are aware that over the last couple of years, there's been about half a dozen um, North American-wide recalls for things like romaine lettuce and others. And so the, the traditional farming methods for some crops are, are challenged. And um, it's getting harder and harder to irrigate. Fresh water supplies are under such pressure. So when you can grow using little fresh water, doing it locally in a clean environment, the odds of having uh, any kind of recall is, is remotely low. So you've now, so you, you're not only ticking all the environmental benefit boxes and ticking the food security in, you know, boxes but now you're also ticking the box of this is a safer better product that doesn't have 
pesticides on it. So it, it, it is where the market is, is going, undoubtedly. Hmm. And so, I mean, farmland has historically been a great bet from like an investment perspective, providing solid returns. Um, if, if farmers can be more productive on their own land, which it sounds like they can with this sort of technology, like what opportunities do you think there are for investing in land coming out of this crisis? Yeah, so if you're, you know, for example, right now, if you had some, some ag land that's in the uh, agricultural land reserve and you were to just lease it out, you know, it's, it's, it's not a massive return on that. If you start farming it, obviously there's a better return, but there's seasonalities there and, 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 and you have to farm. It. Um, I think being able to add uh, technology that gives you, you know, much more reliable 12 month a year farming on that same land um, just makes that agriculture land an even better investment so that you can build a business on it that runs 12 months a year um, with much less risk of crop failure. Um, so I, I see this as, as, this isn't competing with farmers. This is technology to help farmers be even more successful. Right. And um, so the primary goal of indoor vertical farming, obviously, is to maximize crop output um, of healthy food in a limited space. Um, what do you think, like someone new to the farming industry, how do you think that they would set up their farm today versus, you know, something they've inherited? Um, well, it is still farming. So I, I do encourage people to, um, you know, for example, over the last you know, few years, there have been some rooftop greenhouses. And, and, and well, you know, maybe that's a good idea in some places. Rooftops are not the most easy place to work. Um, there's rarely an elevator that you can put a pallet jack and a forklift uh, to get it up there easily. Uh, um, there's no parking nearby. <laughs> You know, like there's there's lots of, of sort of annoyances with some of these what I would call romantic farming notions, and so uh, my encouragement to to people that we speak with is it's still farming. You should you should be putting your farm on land that is priced where it's 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 economical. Um, the virtues of being right downtown compared to the rent is probably not as good as being on the outsides where, where it might be cheaper, but now you can have this valuable business running on it. So um, I think it lets you buy the, uh, often buy the, the worst piece of land possible and now make it valuable because you can put this kind of technology on it. So I, I think it's a great strategy from a real estate perspective on being able to take something that might be, you know, have not the greatest building on it and if it can be repurposed, um, I just think it, it, it lets you still be a farmer. So my, my advice is you need to keep your costs low. It's still farming. Um, yeah, as opposed to trying to be, you know, romantic and I have a farm right, you know, in downtown Vancouver. Right. It, it, it's, it's rarely a good idea to take, you know, what's typically a lower cost industry and put it in the most expensive place possible. It's much better to have a strategy of let's let's repurpose something that is, is probably better priced. Um, yeah. Cool. And so a question we just like to ask everybody is sort of what's your personal philosophy around real estate investing? Um, uh, well, you know, pandemic not notwithstanding, um, farmland 
has has typically been a, a fantastic investment. Um, and you know, sure enough, I, I, I've seen different you know pension funds and others buying up you know thousands and thousands of acres uh, of, of farmland, just because you know we're going to add another three, four billion people to the planet. And I find that almost everybody eats almost every day, and they seem to enjoy it. And we just can't. And and yet, there's so much soil erosion and challenges with farming. So farming, just like waterfront property, which is one of my favorites, or farmland. Um, th these things are, they're just so rare. Everybody wants it and they're not making any more of it. So it just, to me, is always going to be a fairly solid investment. So would you say that you're a buyer right now? Yeah, for, I, I think right now, or I think over the next year, it's going to be a fantastic time to, to be looking um, not that you're happy when there's, you know, disasters or, you know, and this is obviously a horrible pandemic. People are dying. People are getting horribly sick. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, if, if you're in the market for real estate, um, I think there will be opportunities in both the farming side um, and then other, you know, cool spots um, to, to buy real estate. The next year is going to be a rare opportunity, I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the market goes for sure. Um, so we have a bunch of questions on the line, but our last question um, is, you know, what what's your number one piece of advice for someone interested in either investing in farming or getting involved in farming? Um, what, what number one piece of advice investing in farming? Um, you've got to know what you need what what you want to grow and how to grow it and who's going to buy your product so um yeah yeah um I, we, we we've had calls from you know i'm a former software developer you know from silicon valley and i you know want to retire to a caribbean island and start a farm can i buy one of your machines well, you know, we'll we'll have the conversation, but but typically you need to know what you want to grow and who's going to buy it, um, because it's one thing to grow it; it's another thing to harvest it, package it, and and get it to market. So people need a plan for 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 planting the seed to it's on the store shelf, and so you have to have all, all of that well planned. So it's like any other business; you you have to have a solid business plan. Um, from beginning to end, yeah. Have a good plan. Yeah, <laughs> sound advice. <laughs> um, okay, great. So I think I'll flip it over to Steve right now. We've got a bunch of questions on the line. Um, hey, yes, we do. Um, this has been great, Dave and Kay. Thanks very much for doing this. Um, I've got a handful of questions that people have been uh, typing into the Zoom chat. If you guys have more while we're running through these, just throw them in there. Um, but Dave, as they usually are, they're kind of all over the place. Uh, so we'll bounce, bounce around a little bit. Um, the first one, which is, I think an interesting one is why be a public firm? Why is Cubic Farms public? Yeah, uh, we didn't start out to be public. Uh, my last one, I kept it private. Um, we actually were the result of a spin out. So our founders at Bevo Farms, um, uh, they owned 40% of the company. Uh, Bevo Farms did, and then and then uh, a bunch of us that kind of put the team together and raised the capital owned the balance. 
And um, during 2018, the, the, the cannabis craze, but lots of cannabis companies um, uh, started buying uh, greenhouse uh, companies. And Bevo being one of the best, um, they were acquired by a privately held cannabis company. And before Bevo closed that transaction, they did a one-time special dividend to all their to all the Bevo Farm shareholders. Bevo was a publicly traded greenhouse company that owned 40% of privately held cubic farms. And they didn't want their ownership in cubic to be sort of a consolation prize to the cannabis, private cannabis company that was buying them for their greenhouse asset and the fact that they were public. So I got out of bed one morning and went from having, you know, 40 shareholders, all of whom I'd known because I had raised all the capital till that point, uh, to having a thousand shareholders, uh, most of whom I did not know. Uh, and now we basically had enough shareholders to do an automatic listing. So uh, we did. So we were able to kind of piggyback on the, on the Bevo exit tra transaction. So we had very little legal fees and I was able to go public with, with, with no dilution. Usually when you're a private company and you're going public, you often will, you know, go public either through a reverse takeover or something and it can cost you 20% of your company, 30% of your company. So we were able to go public, do a direct listing, very little legal fees, no dilution. Uh, but we did, but the downside is that we went public a little earlier than I would have probably uh, liked to have done. However, um, when we did that, I said, I think in a year or 18 months from now, we'll be very glad that we went public. And sure enough, today I can absolutely say I am glad we're public now. We were able to do a fantastic acquisition uh, of Hydrogreen um, using our stock, um, retain the management team. They're a fantastic group and we're just killing it. And so we really have emerged as one of the only publicly traded companies in the ag tech space with globally patented technologies that, you know, it's, it's so we're, we're, I'm really happy with where we are now. That's awesome. Um, is there a, any, any like home edition coming? This is one of the questions that came in, but it's, I was also thinking of it as like, is there like gonna be a neighborhood version of this thing or where, you know, you can have or do this for yourself or for a handful of neighbors? Um, there already are uh, a few sort of home garden, fancy fridge type things out there. Um, if you Google them, you'll find them on Amazon. I think Ikea has a version. Um, and so today I can say that we are not going to be kind of the B to C uh, play. We want to stay at the commercial scale. We're also not in the, what I call the container farming business. Um, so even though we build our machines in these custom built 40 foot stainless steel growing chambers that are the same size as a 40 foot high cube shipping container, we aren't a container farming company in that we typically don't sell one at a time. Our latest deal is for a hundred of our machines. So we're wanting to stay in that commercial large scale uh, space. And so we're just, I try and be a disciplined CEO. We're kind of knowing, you know, who your customer is and not getting distracted. So we're staying at that larger scale. So for now we're not going to be doing the home version thing or even the smaller container side thing even though we do get a lot of calls for them all the time cool yeah stand in your lane makes sense yeah the um there's a question here about does this meet uh alr requirement for zoning 
Yeah, it does. So, so we have a, um, uh, our, our demo farm, the one farm that we own ourselves is our research and development farm in Pitt Meadows. Um, and um, it's, it's on ALR land and we had no trouble getting the permit at all. Cool. If we aren't, you know, farming, I don't know what is because we're growing way more produce uh, per cubic foot than anything else on the planet, bar none. So I would, you know, uh, we're, we're closer to being a, you know, greenhouse 2.0 that has a built-in tractor, you know, like that's what, what this is. Yeah. Right. Right. And the same person asked a follow-up question is, uh, can you, is this, can you ask about power supply and energy requirements? Yeah. So, um, uh, we, we, we typically go on three phase power, um, probably 48 amps available per machine available it doesn't use all of that but um uh, yeah so um power you know you, you certainly do need to have enough power but for our, our smallest system which is usually 14 growing machines two germination and irrigation machine and then you know your office and things like that uh, you know 600 amps is is ample um Right. This one, um, this person says this whole thing sounds like a no-brainer no -brainer for all farms. What are the downsides, if any? And then it says in brackets, there must be something. Um, well, yeah, so the biggest downside is that, uh, that there's not, you know, decades of, um, of, of, of traction. So, you know, just like 50 years ago, if you'd have said to farmers, we're going to grow peppers, cucumbers, and tomatoes year round without soil in buildings, they think you're nuts. But now most of those crops are grown that way. So, uh, you know, cubic farms is where greenhouses were 50 years ago. It's new. Um, and so, but you know, we do have sales. We've got now several installations, several other deals. So, you know, as time goes on, it, it becomes a little bit more, um, typical and there's more track record in that. Um, so that, that's probably our biggest challenge is, 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 is that you're newer, like electric cars, where did you plug them in, you know, five years ago, but now there's a plug on every corner. It, it, it just takes time to get that adoption. Educating the market. Um, yeah. The, the, the downside, um, if you want to grow crops that are, machines will grow. I'm not sure there is a downside. Um, there's a capital cost. I was going to say maybe, maybe it's pricing or the, you know, yeah, it's a big, it's a big nut to, to, to pay out, but I honestly don't know what that compares to the cost of doing it the other way. Maybe it's very similar. I don't know. Well, you know, if, if, if every week it seems there's another crop that we can grow and grow well. So, you know, there's two things I'm really excited about right now. And the sales team's going to get mad at me for talking about this because <laughs> we don't have the product sheets up for it yet, but we're doing really, really well in the, um, with, with different Asian vegetables. And so, um, uh, we, we know that, you know, China's going to be a great market for us. And, crops that they're, they're really challenged on a seasonal basis to grow, we're able to do them very, very well. And also with herbs, we've been able to pull off growing with herbs. So most other vertical farmers or herb growers, you know, that they'll, they'll, they'll grow, they'll harvest the whole plant and start again from seed. Um, we've had great success with, with reharvesting. And so we, we can get, you know, from seed to a harvestable crop in about six or seven weeks, 
just chop the tops off. And then two weeks later, we've got that seven week old plant again. Uh, and, and the quality, the, fla the flavor profile, um, everything is, is staying really, really well. So, so we're very excited about how well we can innovate um, and how many more markets that's gonna open up. And we're using our propagation technology. Um, and if there's any farmers on the phone, um, we're able to achieve uh, air pruning, which I know almost every other vertical farmer in the world has been really challenged to do. Well, we pulled it off um, and filed the patent, I'm happy to say. Um, <laughs> but we uh, were able to propagate um, not just vegetables and herbs and things. We're able to do flowers and trees. We're able to do cloning. Um, so there's just thousands of you know terrestrial plants um, that were able to uh, germinate from seed to seedling or clone so every nursery greenhouse field farmer we can do their seed starts or, you know they could buy a machine and now have way more propagation ability than mm -hmm. they've ever had uh, and do it all in-house for themselves so that's that's an, our, our kind of our latest you know product that we brought to market that's awesome. So you and you just mentioned sort of briefly flowers like that would be a whole it could be a whole business by itself, couldn't it? Just stepping into the whole flower world. Yeah. So, you know, again, I, you know, I don't want to go too far there because we haven't actually we haven't launched um, verticals there, but we're doing R&D on a bunch of different flowers that we're able to take from seed. And, hmm. um, you know, so that's a whole other market. So, so many in the, in the vertical farming space or the controlled environment space have been kind of stuck on the leafy green side of, of the business. And that's a fantastic side. Don't, don't get me wrong. And we put a lot of effort there. We, we, we do that very, very well. But we're able to leverage um, our technology in so many different um, sectors um, of, of farming now, um, up to and including animal feed with a fully automated end-to-end -end solution there. So we need technology in farming. Um, just like, you know, 20 years ago, they started inventing milking robots. Well, you couldn't write a business plan that said that buying a milking robot was cheaper than hiring somebody for, you know, back then, you know, $5 an hour to milk, milk the animal. Well, the problem is, is that there's not many little boys and girls that, you know, go to school and come home and say, mommy, mommy, I want to be the best cow milker in the history of the world for the rest of my life. It, you know, so we need technology in farming. Yeah. Farming has got to be cool. Um, it's, we have to be smarter, better, faster, more environmentally friendly, doing it low. You know, all of these things have to happen and they are happening. Um, Sorry, that was a bit of a rant and a tangent. No, it's great. It's great. Um, while you were talking, we were talking about the cost of the product. Um, and two questions came in at this at the same time. Um, one of them is how long is the, re the return on investment period for the machine? And the other one was what's the most profitable crop? Um, uh, so uh, return on investment, it really depends where you are, what you're going to grow, what you're going to sell that produce for, um, which is a little bit, you know, how long is a piece of string? There's so many variables, but uh, we, we have put a lot of uh, work into our financial models, which if you were to grow, you know, sort of a mixture of lettuces, which is a higher volume, lower margin, along with some microgreens, which is a much higher margin, but lower volume. 
and then certain herbs like basils and things. If you grew a combination of those things and you could sell what you grow for the, the, the prices that we've suggested, which are market prices, like similar to what is on the you know, wholesale and then marked up at the grocery store. Wholesale to wholesale. And, and, and we have our products in, in store now. We have one farm and then some of our customers are selling their, their, their produce. So produce grown in a cubic farm on the shelf, right beside something grown and imported from California can go head to head. Um, so having that mixture of crop that I just alluded to, you know, three, three to five years, I think is, is a, is a reasonable payback. If you were able to do all sort of specialty crops, like say all specialty micro microgreens or all specialty basil or something like that, you could have a payback in two years. Um, and and potentially even less. So it's why we put, it's why our focus is on the technology and what can we grow. And we've got great growers and great machine people and bringing those things together, we're just endlessly coming up with more and more things that we can grow. How do we grow them? How do you germinate, plant, grow, harvest, package, put all. And so those are the things that we're focusing on so that our farmer customers can be successful. Our job, make that customer farmer successful. So uh, it's why we only own that one farm and we're focused on that. And then we, you know, supply technology to, to our farmer customers. So that's, you know, most profitable crop. Um, uh, microgreens do very, very well. Certain herbs do very well. Um, but depending where you are, you know, things like lettuces and other sort of salad products can do very, very well. Uh, certain places in the world, they, they can only import this stuff. Right, right. Um, this person says, does uh, Cubic Farms have the capital to finance the equipment for the end user? Yeah, we've been asked program? that a lot. Um, I, I would say today, no, um, but we've got a few financing partners that we can certainly connect the farmer with that, that could potentially be helpful. Um, but it's like any other business. Um, your, your lender is, is going to look, you know, the, the cubic farms equipment is one thing, but your business plan um, is certainly another, your experience in the space, all of these things. It's like any other, you know, lending scenario. What's your plan? What's your experience? What are your assets? You know, what else can we leverage all these sorts of things? Cool. What can government at any level do to support cubic farms or businesses like this? Is there more than sorry, they can do? Sorry, you, you cut out a bit. What was the question? Sorry, uh, what can government at any level do to support companies like cubic farms? Sure. So um, I would say entrepreneurial um, financing and lending programs would be helpful for government. Um, making land available, you know, because you can put these almost anywhere. If there was, you know, municipal land that was just almost useless, um, you know, could they make it available to a local farmer? That would be a helpful thing. Um, I would also say uh, catch up with the times. So this is farming. And don't have a, you know, a furrowed brow for months and months wondering if we can, you know, give you a permit, you know, for, for doing this on, on this land. Um, yeah, so catch up. Uh, yeah. Great. 
Um, got a couple more here and then we're going to be right on time, which is great. So this one, a very open-ended question of like, if, if today and what you're doing is, um, current technology, it's like, what's the future technology for farming? Like what, if you're looking around the corner, stuff that you're not doing or is not possible yet, like where's, where does farming go or where does farm technology go from here? What does it look like in 10, 15 years? Oh, I love that question. So, you know, I'm obviously an entrepreneurial CEO um, and this is what I spend my time thinking about. Um, it, it's simply more technology. There's going to be two things um, and, and we're really focused on them. One is going to be uh, leveraging artificial uh, intelligence. So, and the reason that's so important is, you know, some of the best growers in the world are Dutch greenhouse farmers, but, you know, God has only made so many of them. And it is, uh, it's, it's harder and harder to find great growers. And so um, artificial intelligence lets technology spot problems and opportunities better, cheaper, faster, and helps to eliminate the variables earlier. Um, and this kind of farming, when bolted up with, with things like AI, can remove variables and increase the success rates of crops. Like we hear all the time about storms or disease or pestilence or you know climate change just you know ruining crops, which hurt you know water shortage. All these things are all putting pressure. Soil erosion, um, urban creep, all these things put so much pressure on farms and farmings and food supply. So when you can use technology to eliminate variables to have more predictable outcomes, let's do that in farming. So technology and then um, uh, even more automation. So our, our hydrogreen on the animal feed side, it is, it is fully automated. And um, on the cubic farm side, because our machines bring every tray of plant to the front and a worker can stand in the front of that and do all the planting and harvesting, we think the next generation of our own automation is going to be the robot that goes up to the front and can do all the planting. And then the next we'll be doing all of the harvesting. So, uh, but because of how we started the technology, we know that we can get to the next phases of automation quicker, cheaper, faster, using fairly off the shelf stuff. Um, uh, so th those are the two things, because again, I, people don't necessarily want to be farmers but we all still need to eat and um yeah so technology can really help us so just like on star trek you know they were able to just say what they wanted and it appeared we need to get there and that, that's going to be a while but we can get close cool that would be awesome uh, so i've got two more questions um for you here what um so this one's kind of around the, the logistics, I guess. The machines, when I watched your video, they look pretty pretty big, like you said, like the size of a container. Um, this one's, are they all made here? So if someone orders in the UK, are you shipping everything from here? Or are they, are they made in all the different places around the world to keep the shipping costs down? Or how does it work? Yeah, so we, we have one um, uh, central factory, um, and it's actually located in China. And we can ship our machines on any truck, any train, any boat. And that lets them arrive basically 90% ready to go. And installation is quick. And, and that's incredibly important. Um, Who does the installation though? The farmer yeah, or so, you, you guys have no, somebody? So, so we, we, we send a team in. So we, we would use some local resources. 
engage the, the local farmers well, they're probably going to have a handyman guy, you know, and so we would assemble a local team plus send a couple of our people and, 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 and put the things together there so that when we're gone, they, they can do maintenance and other, you know, things that need to be done. Cool. Um, but because we can manufacture centrally and then ship on any train, any truck, any boat, it, it lets that installation happen, you know, much quicker than, you know, a big construction project otherwise would. And that's then your path to revenue is much quicker because you're planting, you know, pretty quickly once we're there. Right. And if someone orders one today, what, what is the timeline on that? They have it in 30 days or? Yeah. So uh, typically um, we, we, we do have machines in inventory, but, you know, we aren't ever the bottleneck. Usually it's, it's the customer. So they're going to have their site. Uh, maybe they need a permit, maybe they don't, but they're going to need some sort of site preparation, either their power, water, drain, you know, so, so getting their facility ready so that when the machines are there, the installation is quick. So typically uh, what I say is you, you give us a deposit today, we can be shipping your machines in about 90 days. It's probably a month to have them, you know, from there, you know, by the time they're gone through uh, traveling, um, go through customs, you know, and then get them on site. So it's probably you know, three, four months, five months from, yep, I want to do this. Here's a deposit to it's delivered and installed. Installed. That's typically, and as I say, we, we are not usually the, the, the holdup. It's, it's on the customer side. Great. Great. Well, um, last question that I've got here from the crowd, it's kind of a, a, there's two questions that I've put together, but one of them, you had mentioned that uh, the system needs much less fresh water. And so the person said, well, why does it need less fresh water? And the other side to this is, is recycling occur occurring? How's it managed? Like how do you know, how do you recycle, I guess, whatever comes out of the machine? Yeah. So um, if you look on our videos, you, you can see that, that we will, well, we've got three different ways of watering, but on the one that's most popular, uh, we water on one end and then gravity kind of spreads it along the tray and then any excess water, is actually uh, uh, collected in a cup and then drains into a recovery tank and then it's reused. Um, and so, you know, it, it's literally using, and because we have a closed environment, we have relatively little evaporation uh, compared to many other sort of open, you know, type uh, growing. And so um, we're using kind of as much water as that plant will consume um, uh, by and large. So, um, you know, much less than, you know, anything else that we've ever seen. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for doing this. That wraps another episode of the Addy podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe to get the next episode. For more information, visit addyinvest.com. Until next time.